Rockheads, this is Rish Outfield, and you're listening to the Rish Outcast. I've got a story for you today. Ah, my microphone dropped. It is really hard to untangle this thing while I'm driving. I bet there are as many as three fatalities a year due to microphone-related distractions. Still recording? Okay. So I've decided to present to you a story that you probably heard before. No, why would you have heard it before? Called Creature Feature. And this story previously appeared on the Horror Addicts podcast. I think it was July 2014. Might have been August, but this was my entry for 2014 in the uh, Masters of the Macabre contest, which I entered four times now. I believe this was my fourth entry. The deal with the Masters of the Macabre contest is they give you an overall topic. Like one year it was curses, uh, one year it was hauntings. And this year, the topic was creature feature. Then everybody who signs up is given a location, a source of the monster, I think, and an object that has to be critical to the story. And my location of the story was lighthouse. The object was camera and The source of the monster, I think that's what they call it, was Volcano. And I wrote a story and then pared it down. I think I cut like 1,400 words off of it. I cut a third of the story out. And then I recorded it. And the entire story had to be 10 minutes or less. And my recording was 25 minutes long. This was after I had spent an inordinate amount of time editing it down. And so I ended up having to cut another third, I think, of the story out. When I had it edited and recorded, I sent it to them. Uh, But because Creature Feature was the name of the contest, I changed the title to Lighthouse View, I think. Which is not a good title, but I don't care because that's not, that's not the real story that ran on Horror Addicts. This is the real story. And although I liked this story when it was long, I didn't think the short version was all that great. And I knew I wasn't going to win this story with a contest. But that was all right too because As soon as you win the contest, you can't enter it anymore. And I have really enjoyed these past four years entering this contest and writing four stories I never would have written without them. I mean, see, I should enter a heck of a lot more contests so that I write a heck of a lot more stories that I wouldn't just write by myself if left to my own devices. Anyway, please enjoy the lengthy version of Creature feature. I brought a special guest with me for this one. 
Not special in the way you are, Rish, but uh, an actual guest. I asked Renee Chambliss to lend her voice to this project, and she was very kind and did so. And uh, thank you. Uh, so enjoy. Creature Feature by Rish Outfield Carly got to the lighthouse just before 10 in the morning. Pretty good for a four-hour drive. Not surprisingly, the old man was already waiting for her, sitting in a little folding chair, reading a large print Louis L'Amour collection. News, lady? he asked, glancing up at her. She pushed away the sarcastic response that had come to her lips, what with the camera and tripod on one shoulder, her sound bag on the other. That's me. You made the trip over, he mumbled, slowly putting the book down, and even slower, rising to his feet. Even though it's probably for nothing. It's not for nothing, Carly said. I get to see your beautiful lighthouse. Beautiful, he grumbled. He was an ancient-looking man with a white beard, a sailor hat over a bald head, and about a million wrinkles. He had huge ears and a huger nose, and his chest made a wheezing sound when he breathed. Ain't been beautiful in about twenty years. Decades of rust and peeling paint back. Well, I... She began. She was tired from the drive, and her coffee had run dry eighty miles back. View is nice, though, he added. Let you decide if it's beautiful. Sounds like a plan, she said, and followed him into the old building. Carly Page had been surprised to find so few lighthouses on this part of the Oregon coast. Her internet search showed old pictures, paintings, and records of the past, and classified this one at Puente Dormido as being closed. Turned out the old man who ran the lighthouse years before had spent all his money, including selling his father's home, to buy the disused relic, and lived there now, a sort of aged window into a bygone era, same as the edifice itself. When she tracked him down on the telephone, at a cantina in town he frequented thrice a week, he could guess what she was after. That monster won't come here, he'd said over the payphone. Another relic of the past. Not that I think there's a monster, mind you. You don't know that, she said, sitting in front of the computer, satellite photos on the screen showing a tail, a bulbous head, and a long body, though not in the same shot. And there is a monster. Yeah, yeah, he groused from the bar. But there's probably a one in a thousand chance of it coming here. More like one in ten thousand, she thought, but didn't say. The monster, as the networks were calling it, or Quetzalcoatl as CNN had dubbed it, had emerged from a volcano in the Pacific, and seemed to be a giant snake or worm that either swam or flew, depending on whether you thought the smudge in one satellite photo was wings or not. It had materialized from the oceanic eruption two days before, and had not been seen since. It was on the news constantly, though. Scientists argued about whether it would head for the mainland, go to an island, or never be seen again. 
perhaps burrowing into the sea once more. Carly didn't know why, but she had immediately thought of a lighthouse, and found the closest one, and was at least going to take a look. If the monster came here, she might get a great photo or footage. If not, she would interview a fascinating old man, and maybe get the piece onto the news, the human interest story at the end of the hour. She still had enough context to do that much. The lighthouse was damp and foul-smelling, and had fallen into disrepair on the inside as well. How long have you lived here? She asked, following up the stairs, careful not to brush the rickety-looking handrail. Going on thirty now, he said, huffing but staying ahead of her. For that, I worked here for nearly forty. You okay? She called up to him. The way he was breathing, she worried he might topple backward into her. Just old, he wheezed. Well, that was an understatement. She thought her grandfather had looked better the last time she'd seen him, and that had been in a funeral parlor. Lots of stairs, she said, for lack of something better to say. Eighty is all, he called back. You can make it if I can. They'd reached the halfway point of the building, and there was a little kitchen and a table with a television on in there. A mouse darted from the table to the chair. She wrinkled her nose. Is this? She began, but the old man kept on moving up the stairs, leaving the room behind. She had to hurry to catch up with him, and she wondered if he was just showing off. They emerged onto the upper level, where a bed, a bookshelf, and stack after stack of cardboard boxes lay. There was also a group of windows on one wall, and a closet with no door on the other. What's in the boxes? she asked. Books, mostly, he said, stopping now to cough and hunch over, his hand on his bony hips. <laughs> you read? Not like I used to. Too busy being a big-time reporter? A big-time, no. Reporter... Barely. You said you were on the news. Channel... She glanced up. The stairs continued another ten feet or so to a thick door she assumed led to the roof. Channel 8. Yes, I was. And now I'm pretty much freelance. He squinted at her, finally standing up straight again. You're young, and if you don't mind the observance, you got a face for it. What's the problem? She snorted. <laughs> it wasn't that she didn't like the compliment. She'd been told her looks got her the gig in the first place. Off the record, of course. But she was more than a pretty face, straight hair and teeth, and no visible scars. She figured if she was going to interview the man, she'd best share something about herself and gain his trust. I was a contributor on eight for a year... And then the regular anchor had a baby, so I got the job to fill in for her. On the second day, I read a story with the word knickerbocker in it. Only, I didn't say it like that exactly. Of course, that wasn't the whole story, but it was the best part. The part people seemed to remember. Thanks to the internet. All righty, he said. Not shocked, but not amused either. So, nobody caught the error? Oh, about a thousand viewers did. 
she said, though the calls and emails had actually numbered about 20. TV news is live, goes out as you say it. Why? he asked, and it was a question she had asked several times before. So that it's timely, I guess. That's how they did the news in the golden age of television. If it ain't broke, huh? he said, tossing his book onto the couch and heading for the stairs again. So you said the wrong word. You lose your job for that? Not exactly. They wanted me to apologize on the next show. I didn't think so. On Wednesday, there was a new guest anchor sitting in for me. After telling the story so many times, she now tried to keep any rancor out of her voice. I was pretty sure she'd managed. He sniffed. So you think if you catch a picture of the killer snake monster, you'll be back on top? Mr. Walter, I... Call me Alec, he said as they emerged onto the upper terrace. The view was spectacular. Ocean water, some blue, some gray, led off everywhere, with white waves moving slowly toward them. There were some dark shapes out some indeterminable distance, right below the surface. You see those? she asked. Are they dolphins? Whales, he said, but he hadn't glanced out at the water. Carly could smell salt and something else, like kelp or seaweed. The wind blew up here, cool and refreshing, but it would affect the sound on any recording. Wait, you said killer snake, she remembered. They called it the sea snake before. You haven't heard, he grinned. One of your cousins went out there to get a tasty scoop, and the boat got capsized. Four people went down. No pictures of the snake, except a reflection or shadow or something. Dead? The four people? Apparently. All over the morning news. That go out live, too? Yes, she said wishing she had thought to turn on the news during the drive. Where was this? About eighteen mile out. Not far, really, but... Eighteen miles from the coast or eighteen miles from here? Yes and yes. Carly's chest tightened, and she had to control her breathing. The odds had just gotten better that she'd see the monster, though her father would still have dismissed those chances as minuscule. As if reading her thoughts, Walter shook his head, gazing out at the horizon with a squint. Eighteen miles is still a long way, Miss Knickerbocker. We won't be hosting a monster party any time soon. That's fine. I will still be able to hear your fascinating story. They stood in silence for a minute or more, Carly searching the horizon for anything more interesting than a boat, and the old man gazing out into the middle distance. Finally, she removed her camera from the tripod and turned it on. What? You see something? The old man asked, his own gaze darting out there. Just an impressive view, she told him, beginning to record. He turned toward the lens, straightening his hat. You, um, want me to talk? This'll be without sound, she said, which Mr. Walter must not have understood. I, uh, just feel alive when I can see the sea, he muttered. 
When I was away from it, I felt like something was missing from my... Wait, see the sea sounds lousy, don't it? I'm not recording any sound, Mr. Walter. Call me Alec, he said again, and looked her over while she looked over the water. She wasn't the first woman he'd had up here. Far from it. But it had been a long time. And pretty as she was, she was so young as to make him feel not just old, but ancient, like one of those trees whose rings went back to Abraham Lincoln or the Spanish explorers. He looked away from her and tried to see the whales she had asked about. His eyesight was fine up close, but no good far away. Everything was just a blue blur down there. But he knew it all, every rocky point, every shallow sandbar, the place where the waves were born. Breeze? the woman was saying. Oh, yes, he answered, guessing at the question. She lowered the camera and looked in his direction. I asked if it ever got hot up here or if there is always a breeze. And I said yes, he answered, covering. On sunny days it gets hot even with the breeze. You ever see a shipwreck? Huh? Oh, yeah, when I was new, a boat hit the shallows out there. Used to be able to see the remains to the southwest for years afterwards. She turned her camera that way but he told her there was nothing there now. Does the light still work? Signal light? No. Cost a fortune for the big bulbs. One burned out, other I sold. How old a man are you, Mr. Walter? Ninety-one, he said, and she was surprised. It wasn't that he looked younger. He definitely looked his age. But she'd assumed he was one of those people who due to wind and sun, or hard living or hard drinking, appeared older than their years. Carly finished getting the footage she wanted and shut the camera down. Does this, you know, make you question the world, your understanding of it? Stuff with the snake, you mean? Walter gave her a half-smile. Nah, I fought Hitler and Benito. I always believed in monsters. She nodded at that. She thought she'd ask the question again with the camera rolling. He was a charming man, even if he wasn't very photogenic. They left the terrace and went slowly down the stairs. There was a creak on two of every three steps, and she wondered if this building would still be standing a decade from now. She thought she'd ask if the lighthouse was a historical monument and whether he knew its background. They headed for the room with all the boxes, where she would position the camera, using some of the windows for light. He needed to use the bathroom, down at the bottom level, unfortunately, and told her she could set things up while she waited. The question she had asked him had been one she'd thought about a lot since Quetzalcoatl emerged from the eruption. Millions were taking the appearance of the monster as a sign that either God was truly an irrelevant invented concept, or that the end times were among us and all the old Bible teachings were true. A few very vocal individuals were claiming they now worshipped the flying serpent, as did the Maya of old. Of course, it was the cable news that named the monster, not itself, but Carly marveled nonetheless. If it took praying to an ancient myth to get it to come within camera range, 
she wasn't above giving it a try. She got the camera back on the tripod, set it up in front of the couch, checked the battery, and had the microphone plugged in and ready to attach to Walter before she started to wonder if something had happened to him. She waited another two minutes, then went out to the stairwell, checking on him. Mr. Walter, are you all right? she asked. He didn't respond, but she didn't investigate. Instead, she went up to the terrace again, scanning the surface of the water, the horizon, for something that wasn't a boat, wasn't a whale. Nothing. Sorry to keep you waiting, he called from the stairwell. Miss! She started back down, finding him nearly up the stairs, but tightly gripping the handrail as though he'd fall over without it. Everything okay up there? He asked back, half grumpy, half tired. The same. Should we get to it then? Okie dokie, he said, and continued on to his lounge area. She followed him in and told him where to sit, attaching the little microphone to his threadbare yellowing collar. She stepped back, adjusting the camera angle to best capture his craggy face. You comfortable? she asked. As well as can be expected, said Walter, and grinned for the lens. It made him look like a bearded skeleton from a Disney pirate movie. She began recording, checking her levels on the soundboard before putting her headphones on. Filming? he asked, not seeming to notice the red light glowing atop the camera. Please state your name and spell it for me, Carly asked him, watching the picture display. Alec James Walter Jr. I.T. <laughs> he chuckled, but she didn't get the joke. She considered adjusting the microphone so his beard didn't rub against it if he looked down, but just went on. Mr. Walter, could you tell... Alec, please. Alec, could you tell me when you first saw this lighthouse? Oh, surely. I was six years old. My pappy and grandpappy had decided we would do better to... And then Carly heard the sound of a helicopter through the microphone. She put up a hand to interrupt him, but he must have heard it too. Just, uh, he began, but the helicopter got really, really close, and Carly stood back from the camera. That's... she began, and then was wrestling the camera off of its tripod with as much speed as she could muster. The old man stood up, listening hard as the sound of the craft continued close by. Carly put the camera on her shoulder and ran toward the stairwell. Walter also moved in that direction, but stopped when he realized he was still connected to the tape recorder his lapel microphone was attached to. "'Guess my story didn't pass muster,' he said into the microphone, as he unhooked it and moved his tired legs toward the stairs. It took him more than a minute to get to the terrace, and his heart was starting to hammer. The helicopter was hovering over the water only a half a mile away a big, ugly military vehicle. The newswoman was filming it, the wind blowing her hair into her face. Walter peered out and realized she wasn't filming the helicopter, but something beyond the helicopter, what the craft was undoubtedly observing. White water sprayed where an enormous shape moved fast through the ocean to the northwest. It looked like a snake, all right, if you cut one in half. I can't believe it, he heard Carly shout 
Why not? You didn't really come to interview an old fart. She laughed, and it was infectious, the laugh of delighted wonder, the laughter of the young. Can you see it good? he asked. Oh, yeah, she exclaimed. And it's getting closer. Closer to us or to them, he asked, his eyesight struggling to make out anything beyond rudimentary shapes. Yes and yes, she shouted, thrilled at the development. This is it. I'm back in for sure now. But the helicopter's closer. Their pictures are going to be... That's military, she interrupted government. They won't sell their footage to the networks. He grunted, understanding. Hope you got enough film in that thing. The monster was huge. So big the old man could see it clearly despite his bad eyes. A moment later, the helicopter suddenly rose upward. Walter was about to ask why, but it became obvious. The monster had stopped swimming and had now exploded out of the water and into the air. The damned thing did have wings. Whoa, Carly cooed, and Walter snorted at his own memory of raging hormones and sex drive, coming back to him a tiny bit, a reminder of what it was once like to be so close to a pretty girl. Did you get that? he asked, but the way she was beaming, both hands clutching the camera as she zoomed and pulled back, he knew that she had. That thing's gonna fight a helicopter. And we got front row seats, he mused. But the monster flew past the big craft, angling toward the shore. Its wings were tiny, flapping so fast they were a blur, like a bug's wings. And as its body became more visible, he realized that it wasn't a snake, or even a worm. It looked like a grub, a pale, fat, flying caterpillar. Its body shape was familiar. It looked a bit like his home. Here it comes, Carly called in awe. Alec Walter grabbed the girl's thin arm and gave it a pull. We need to go. What? She looked away from the creature and at him, just for a moment. He over-enunciated, as if speaking to the deaf or a foreign speaker. We gotta go! She glanced back at the monster, now only a football field away. You think it wants us? Move! he shouted, clutching her arm as tightly as he could manage, and pulling her in the direction of the stairs. No, I... she began, but then thought of what he'd said when she'd arrived, of it killing a boat full of people. She hadn't seen a mouth in her recording, and only two odd gaps where the eyes should have been. But maybe, while she had been looking at it, it had been looking at her. She moved. The old man had to let her go as he focused on descending the stairs, and his wheezing breath could be heard over their heavy footfalls on the warped and wearing steps. Right before the halfway point, he stumbled, and she grabbed him with the arm that didn't hold a camera, steadying him. His whole back was wet with sweat, and he was gasping. The sound of the helicopter returned again, louder than it had ever been before, which meant that it was closer than it had ever been before. There came a sound above them, a skittering noise that insects made in the woods or desert, but it was much, much too loud. <coughs> Walter coughed, but she stayed with him, supporting the man until they finally made it to the bottom of the lighthouse. 
He burst out the front door before she could stop him. No! She called as he left the protection of the lighthouse. <laughs> Come on! He managed, stumbling one, two, three steps, but putting out his hand to her. We're safer inside the... It doesn't want us! He coughed, and she ran to his side, supporting him again as they moved away from the foot of the lighthouse. Above them, the helicopter hovered, and someone inside it actually fired a weapon, a rifle or machine gun. The chittering stopped, and Carly saw first the shadow of Quetzalcoatl, then, angling around the pavement, the creature itself, as it too hovered next to the lighthouse. It darted back and forth there, seeming to dance. Beside Carly, the old man collapsed onto his knees, then rolled to a sitting position where he could see the monster. Are you all right? Yeah, yeah, he got out. He was barely getting any breath in, but she heard him whisper, Shoot your camera! Quetzalcoatl kept bending its lower body toward the building, like a wasp that was about to sting. It thinks the lighthouse is an enemy, she marveled, raising the camera, which had never stopped recording, and zooming out to catch the full body of the flying worm. It's... It ain't mad, the old man said, surprising Carly by laughing. <laughs> it's horny. <laughs> she looked at its body language anew, and realized the old man was right. The monster, though smaller than the lighthouse, was shaped very similarly to it, except for the wings, of course, and was shaking its tail like a, well, like anybody who shook their ass for a suitor. The helicopter was still flitting around, slowly circling the top of the lighthouse, but they hadn't fired their weapons again. Maybe they too knew what was going on in front of them. Finally, the giant worm stopped its dance and landed on the side of the lighthouse. She heard the building groan with the added weight and saw paint or brick or shingles drop off where the monster's body connected. Then the creature did an even stranger thing. It rotated itself 180 degrees, with its head looking down at the ground and with its tail right at the top of the edifice, where the searchlight had been, where the terrace was. It's... she started to say, then saw through the camera lens something wet and yellow emerge onto the top of the tower. Two more round yellow orbs emerged before she finished her sentence. Laying eggs... Now I've seen everything, Walter mumbled beside her, and Carly felt an almost overwhelming affection for the old man. If she hadn't been holding the camera, trying to catch each sticky sphere as it came out and stuck in a pile to the top of the lighthouse, she would surely have hugged him. At least a dozen of them came out, and then she, slowly, ever so slowly, panned the camera down the pulsating pale body of the monster and onto its big, flat face. It had eyes, it turned out. They were tiny and gray. Well, tiny in comparison with the creature's body. They were still the size of truck tires. It might have been her imagination, but she seemed to see relief in those eyes, and later she would remember it looking right at her, as though happy to have an audience though she would never know for sure whether that had actually been the case. 
I'm afraid this place is going to be pretty popular in the next few days, Alec, she mused. Finally, the flat, opaque wings that were tied against the worm's body began to vibrate again. She could feel the wind made by them, and it disengaged itself from the lighthouse. There were twenty or so eggs in a cluster up there, and sticky ooze running slowly down the side of the building, where it had been purged. The military helicopter had stopped circling and seemed to be watching from a safe vantage point low in the sky. Carly could imagine what was going through their minds at that moment. As for herself, her heart was still thumping steadily, not out of fear or exertion any more, but from exhilaration. She had a big grin on her face, and the smile never faded as Quetzalcoatl's wings blurred into motion again, and it, she, took to the sky, rose over the water a ways, then plunged beneath the surface once again. The big helicopter followed it over the water. Why, she didn't know receding into the distance much faster than before. She held the shot a moment longer, her arms aching from keeping the camera steady, and finally stopped recording. I swear, she said, lowering her right arm. I wouldn't be surprised if that earns me a... She turned and stared at the old man. Alec Walter Jr. was laying back, his mouth and his eyes both open a slit. He no longer stirred, no longer breathed. Now you've seen everything, she sighed. The end. Well, there was Preacher Feature. I can see cutting a third of a story and making the story better. I, I, I can't. But once you cut half or more of the story out, you start to lose the plot, you start to lose the characters, you start to lose everything but the bare bones of the story. And you know, this was not a, an epic story. Uh, it was not meant to be something overly symbolic or far-reaching or, or any of that stuff. It was just this tiny little story, had one setting, one thing that happens, and then it's over. But. I can't do something so tiny. I think they said 1,200 to 1,300 words is going to be your max. And my story was 4,800 words. And then eventually, I think I got it down to like 1,700 words. Wow, it was no fun to edit the story down. By the time I got it down to the length that it was supposed to be, it was a little bit rushed. It was a little a bit high-pitched because I kept increasing the speed, which would only shave like three seconds off every time. And what's funny is I would try to cut out paragraphs, or I would try and cut out sentences here and there uh, and merge sentences, you know, so that it still made sense. And, and it was still not short enough. And so I started to rewrite sentences and paragraphs and lines of dialogue and all that stuff so it could be much shorter. So you lose, you know, six words in this sentence, two words in that sentence. And then I would sit down and re-record three or four paragraphs and insert that into the text. And what the crazy thing is, the first time I did that, it actually ended up being two seconds longer than the section I was replacing. Which makes no sense because you're, I was cutting stuff out, not adding anything. 
I still don't know how that's possible. In the end, I finally got it down to the 10 minutes. And what's worse is you're supposed to say at the end of the recording, hey, thank you for listening to the Masters of the Macabre Contest. If you'd like to hear more of my stories, please go to doingsteve.com and, and make sure you vote for your favorite. And that was like 30 seconds or something long too that added to the recording, which is no fun. I would much rather have just left all that part off. And the story speaks for itself. If you liked it, vote for me. If you didn't like it, no worries. Shoot, I'm gonna get off on, on this exit because I rolled the windows up to uh, prevent the sound of the wind from uh, ruining the recording. But now it's like super, super hot in here. So I'm gonna get off on this exit and drive through town where I can have the windows down. So like I said before, thanks to Renee Chambliss who voiced Carly in this. And I don't know if the story is all that good, even with all the stuff that got cut out being put back in. I know I like it more with some of that in there, but it's still a really simple story and it doesn't have much more to say except for, uh, you know, life is kind of amazing. It, actually, I was driving, I was in this car driving about three weeks before the story was due and I just turned on this recorder and I, I didn't even put the microphone on my lapel like it is right now. I just held the microphone on my lap because I knew I would never be using the recording. And I said, okay, here are my three words and here's what I've been thinking. And I just sort of talked through the story during my drive saying, okay, lighthouse, a lighthouse. What if there's an old man who lives in the lighthouse and he sees this monster, the, you know, stuff like that. I, I just, I talked through it. And I think initially my plan was that the reason that the giant worm came to the lighthouse was because it thought that the lighthouse was another giant worm. And so it was gonna do battle with it. And then the old man and I, the boy or whoever it was going to be, maybe it was always gonna be a girl reporter, flee the building and it turns out that this giant worm thinks that the lighthouse is a mate and it starts to copulate with it. I, I know it's super stupid, but I liked that better than it trying to fight the lighthouse because that's what you imagine, you know, like Mothra or Godzilla or whatever comes to do is do battle. And I thought it would be cute if it was just like, oh, hey, how you doing? And I came up with the line, you know, he ain't mad, he's horny for the old man, which I think stayed through the, the whole story, through all the drafts of the story. And you know, the word horny has always bothered me. I don't know why. It's There's something about that word that it's not poetic, but what is the poetic version of that? You could say it's amorous, it's randy, it's excited, it's turned on, it's in heat, it's twitterpated, it's in love. But horny is just the word that I figured the old man would use. I, I remember on The Simpsons, the very first season, Grandpa Simpson said one of the words that he never wanted to hear on television again was horny. And he said it like that. And I don't think I was ever tempted to have the old man say Harney instead of horny, but I did have a little bit of fun writing the old man's dialogue because this was 
a guy who said probably instead of probably and said mile instead of miles. I don't know. The story was a heck of a lot of fun to write. And I wrote it like immediately. The day after I did the recording, I sat down and I wrote about half of the story. And then I had to go to work. And at work during my lunch hour, it's only a half hour, I wrote it through to almost to the end. And I, I hadn't reached the part where the old man died, but I jotted down, now I've seen everything as the last line of the story. And I think I wanted the old man to say, now I've seen everything, and then he dies. It just, for some reason, that spoke to me. It was, it was cool. It was like he'd been holding on for something, and now he realized he didn't need to hold on anymore. He'd done it all. Uh, and anyway, it didn't really end up that way. She says it, but part of me wants to expand this story even more and develop the Carly character a tiny bit. See, that—that that is often my temptation, is I feel like, well, if a story isn't working, expand it, make it, write more on it. And that may be a lesson that I have to learn, is that you cannot make a bad story good by adding to it. And you probably can't make a bad story good by cutting parts out either. You just have to write a different story. Anyway, that's my opinion. Everybody's a different writer. But my opinion is it's a good story or it's a bad story and there's probably levels of good and bad. And you know, I could try and punch up the comedy in a story and it may make the story funnier, but it's not gonna make it any better. It might not even make it any funnier. Do you know what I mean? You uh, add a bunch of like quips and one-liners and stuff to a comedy, but I think if the story isn't funny, the skeleton of that comedy isn't funny, it'll be like an unfunny movie with a bunch of funny lines in it. Anyway, I, I, I don't know. The weird thing is I'm, I've gotten to a certain age where, um, ooh, you know that I'm serious because I, I, I rolled my window up. I've gotten to the point where it's likely that there are more years behind than there are ahead, which should be terrifying. But if anything, it just it's just like, oh, it's kind of like the knowledge that one day you will die. You, you're always aware of that. Sometimes you're reminded and you push it to the back of your head because if you dwell on it, it begins to control your life. But there are people out there who could probably say, hey, you know what, I've reached X. I've reached 50, I've reached 30, I've reached 11. And now I've got to really make the years count because there's, there's not so many left. And they can change their whole life. I don't know if, uh, if everybody experiences that. It's probably likely that everybody experiences it. I don't know how I even got on this. Oh, it's just, look, if I haven't realized how to write a story by now, then I guess I'm never going to. I marked the year my family got a computer and I was suddenly able to type up my stories and save them 
as the first year I, I, of my writing career, if you will. Because suddenly I could save it and print out a copy and give it to somebody. Whereas in the past, there was always one copy of the story, that was it. And suddenly I could keep track and I could have a physical record, you know, print out a story or have it on a disc. And that's been going for a long time now. I remember that year. And I, especially that summer, I would come upstairs because the, the computer was in the living room. After everybody had gone to sleep, I would type on it. I would work on the computer. And, you know, I missed that because in those days, a computer could only do so much. And the computer that we had, I don't know what kind it was or anything like that, but it was not a gaming com computer. It was not internet capable. Really, all it had was word processor on it. And then later, I think we got a spreadsheet program, which was fun, and I used it to try and keep track of my comic book collection. But I think at one point I tried to use it to keep track of my writing. You know, like uh, what year I wrote this story and what it was about and how long it was. I, I, and uh, whether I had finished it or not. I don't know. That. But eventually I just transferred that over to the word processor. and. I think about that computer now and I sort of wish I had a computer that was just a word processor that didn't have the internet and didn't have the capability of playing hundreds of games, I think for free. You could probably go online and play just about any game you want for free or at least enough free games that you could play another one a week for the rest of your life. And you know, there's podcasts out there and then there's tons and tons of projects whether it's stuff like this, you know, to do the Rish Outcast, whether it's Doonstief, that gets my go, or audiobook projects that I have commitments to do but haven't been working on. That's a lot of distraction. That's why when I was talking to you about the episode, which episode was that? It was when I was talking about losing uh, a lovely singing voice. I was talking about going to the cabin where there's no tr distractions and you can just write. That's what you're there to do is write. And that's really cool. I, I would love to be able to have a computer just for writing and have the discipline to use that computer just for writing. I, I'm not very disciplined and, you know, that's too bad. So let's see, is there anything else about Creature Feature that I want to talk about? Oh, well, one thing is, you know, it was the Masters of the Macabre contest. And I could tell just from when I came up with the idea um, that it wasn't going to be a scary story. And the one that I did last year, in 2013, was the White House tour story. And I could tell when I was coming up with that one that it wasn't going to be very scary either. It's, uh, it's hard to write a story that's truly scary. And I think the only one of the four that I wrote that works as a horror story is the one about the curse of Macbeth. And shoot, I always meant to record 
the full version of that too because I really liked the longer version although I don't think it was nearly as cut down as this story was and yeah maybe I could ask Renee if she'll voice that one again for me she uh, she voiced all the female characters on my entrance version for the Masters in the Macabre contest and did a really really good job once I realized what the, the monster, the worm, wanted, which was to lay its eggs there, presumably for the uh, lighthouse to fertilize, it sees a male version of itself, and so, uh, or, or not, it could just be that it wanted a place to lay its eggs, and the characters, or rather the author, mistakenly says that it's significant that it's the same shape as the lighthouse. But who cares? Once I realized that I wanted it to be there to lay its eggs, the story isn't really all that scary anymore. It's not there to eat people. And I did try and write a little bit of fear when she thinks, you know, while she was looking at it, maybe it was looking at her, but that's not really what the story was about. You know, if it were a movie, and the studio head or whatever said, I need you to make it scarier. You would have to just pump up the dread of the unknown, but the ending is just not gonna be scary. Although I guess you could easily have had the worm attack the helicopter and kill all of those military guys. But I didn't want to, I wanted it to be benign. And yeah, in this version, it kills some people who are paparazzi or reporters or whatever they are. But you don't see it do that, and it could easily have been an accident that it killed all those people. So, there's that. I don't know if it's a good story or not, like I said, but I do know that I would never have written this story if not for the Masters of the Macabre contest. And because of that, I really like it. As I said, the Scottish scene is my favorite of the four stories I've written for them. But I don't think any of them would have been in my head if they hadn't given me these prompts, these, uh, you know, you have to write this and you have to have it have this in it. And so I'm very grateful that I entered this contest again. And yeah, for a, a moment there, I thought I wouldn't do it because I'm too busy with the stuff that I'm doing right now. Or sorry, I'm speaking in the present tense. I was too busy then. And I was very glad that I did it. It didn't take long at all to write the story and it didn't take long at all to record the story. It took a hell of a long time to pare the story down. And, you know, that's unfortunate. But that's life. Unless I can somehow program into my mind I'm going to write a 1,200-word story and just stop when it reaches 1,200, I'm always going to have this problem. But... It was cool to be able to write the story and enter it. And, you know, maybe people out there liked it. If they didn't, that's okay, because I liked the story. Thank you for listening to the Rish Outcast. I probably ought to have fake Sean sing something, but uh, I'll ask him. See what he thinks. Another song? All right. Just this once. <laughs> Do your closing. All right. I, I guess all I had to do was ask. 
Thank you for listening. You have a good evening. Maybe I will meet you again sometime. This has been Rashad Field. Special thanks to Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com for the music used in this episode. The podcast you have just suffered through was produced under a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives 3.0 license. That little bit of knowledge just might save your life one day. This is what, what song? Oh, dear God, no. I was tired of my lady. We'd been together too long. Like a worn-out recording of a favorite song. So while she lay there sleeping, I read the paper in bed. And in the personal columns, there was this letter I read. If you like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain, if you're not into yoga, if you have half a brain, if you like making love at midnight in the dunes of the Cape, then I'm the love that you've looked for. Write to me and escape. Hmm. You know where this is going, don't you? But fuckery. Yes. I didn't think about my lady. I know that sounds kind of mean, but me and my old lady had fallen into the same old, dull, boring, sickening routine. So I wrote to the paper, took out a personal ad, and though I'm nobody's poet, I thought it wasn't half bad. Yes, I like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain. I'm not much into health food, I am into champagne. I've got to meet you by tomorrow noon and cut through all this red tape at a bar called O'Malley's where we'll plan our escape. Yes. The song's starting to grow on me. So I waited with high hopes Then she walked in the place. I knew her smile in an instant. I knew the curve of a face. It was my own lovely lady. And she said, oh, it's you. (laughs) And we laughed for a moment. And I said, I never knew that you liked pina coladas and getting caught in the rain and the feel of the ocean and the taste of champagne if you like making love at midnight in the dunes of the cape you're the lady i've looked for come with me and escape
if you like the British Secret Service and a man with a license to kill, if you're into pushy galore, if you something that rhymes with thrill, if you like shaken nuts not stirred, if you like thunderballs, I'm the agent you've looked for. You know who you can call. Ghastly.